0: Another construction site. What is going on? This forest is under construction.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Paths, Puddles, Products podcast. My name is Yuli. I work in product and service strategy, coming from a service design background. My producing partner Aniko is a former head of product coming from a development background. In one of the most shared TED Talks, educational expert Ken Robinson says, quote, education is one of those things that goes deep with people, like religion and money, end quote. I could not agree with him more. So much is being said about education, while what we bring to the table can often be enriched by experiences that were gained off of our official paths. Oniko and I talked about our most recent attempts at learning something new and looked back on our previous sources of knowledge in and outside of our professional fields. Come join us on our walk. Hi, Uli. Hi, Aniko. We are walking on another Buddha Hill today, back on Normafa, where (laughs) Uh, apparently we can run into construction even in the middle of the greenest area.
0: Yes, this is the second construction site that we have seen in the past five minutes, but
1: let's hope we can find some more peaceful areas as well. Yes, it's a national, I think it's a national park in the city. It's really on the edge of an urban part of the city with lots of green fields and uh, proper forest. So we are walking here with the dogs, Aka, Azara and Stella. And it's a sunny day, so no rain and mudslides this time.
0: Yeah, and it's not super hot either, so it's just right.
1: So how are you? How have you been?
0: Well, I was sick for the last two weeks, so it wasn't that much fun. I didn't have the opportunity to come out to the forest in a while. So instead, I spent a lot of time at home with books and with my computer. And uh, there was one funny thing that I realized, that during this time, I both at least two different D&D writing courses.
1: <laughs> and Do you want to just clarify for those who don't know what D&D is? Just in a brief description. Right, sure. Uh, me and my
0: abbreviations. D&D stands for uh, Dungeons & Dragons. It's a tabletop role-playing game where a bunch of nerds sit around the table and uh, build a story together while rolling a lot of dice. So I can't really remember the last time that I bought any courses or started to like purposefully learn anything that's, that has actually something to do with what I do for a living. But these other things like D&D or dog training or these other random things also have a good effect on my work. And I do think that I can use some of this knowledge during my work as well. So how do
1: they have a good effect?
0: So they say that hobbies are great because, you know, they recharge your batteries and they help you relax, but they actually have some skills that I can use okay. as well. Yeah, but I, if I start talking about d then this will be a whole d episode. So let's not do that. I just want to throw this question back at you first like have you noticed something similar do you have all your your hobbies with transferable skills as well
1: absolutely i have a similar experience with what sort of new skills i want to focus on and quite recently i've been debating with myself whether i should go to a writing a writers camp or if I should invest into a Power BI course.
0: And what was what was your decision?
1: I decided not to do either. Aww. But instead, start practicing writing on my own. And from the fall on, I will probably do both. Good. That's a good plan. Yeah, one is something that has been a passion of mine since I was very young. I might have mentioned it earlier in one of our episodes that originally I was gonna be a a writer that was my first calling but I actually didn't really practice it for a very or I haven't practiced it for a very long time because initially I thought that I cannot make a living out of something that I love doing (laughs) because work has to be blood sweat and tears oh no (laughs) so I need to acquire skills that I still need to learn. It it cannot just come from within. And so I stopped writing, but I told to myself that writing is so genuine to me that I will anyways continue doing it while or where doing math is not something I will do on Friday nights, you know, with a glass of wine in my hand. So so now I'm I'm excited to rediscover this because I find that You know, I went through a bit of a burnout, and I find that I I try to do things that excites me, and I definitely feel that it does again. It's like rediscovering an old part of me, and the Power BI course is interesting to me because most recently in my career, that area, so um, data analysis got me excited and i thought to learn some tools to become better at it so actually i think those choices are both driven by passion and excitement so that's good i don't feel that they are driven by you know some kind of a negative restraint yeah that's good if you don't like feel forced to do them so let's just also give a visual to the listeners that I think we mentioned it before that all of our dogs are hounds. I, I have two Afghan hounds and Aniko's dog, Alka, is a Hungarian hound. And for those who don't know these breeds, I just would like to say that these dogs don't walk themselves. <laughs> as soon as we stop, they stop and wait for some action to to come about. That's so funny.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I always felt throughout my career that somehow these skills that I I acquired one by one, they were like Lego bricks built upon one another. I mean, I, I practice a part of design that I find is one of the most complex fields And it requires quite some knowledge from other design fields. And my experience has been is that I just actually worked a bunch of years on each of those design fields before I started doing service design, for what it's worth. And so they were always like milestones following one another. But I always find that next to it, there was always space for exploration, like when I went to your class, where I studied front-end coding, yeah. I was your student. Yeah. And I loved it. And
0: That was fun.
1: Yeah. And that was, for example, something that was some kind of um, a cross between of an interest and also work-related. Because I wanted to understand how those people who, work, who I work with, who work with front-end, how they need to think that will make it easier for us to work together. Because I will understand their problems more. Yeah. And I will be able to maybe communicate my needs better or we will have a, a common platform to to yeah to find common ground quicker and easier and less painful and yeah, I find that's the same with all these courses that we've been talking about like I, I use that course right Like I didn't I didn't declare myself to be a front-end developer front-end expert of the bat because I don't think I became a, an expert
0: of the bat yeah, but you broadened your horizons and build context. Yeah, that's also very important.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I actually pre- prefer those, those courses as well, even from the teacher perspective, where I could work with people who are like who do have a job, but they also have some extra interest and want to spend their evenings and weekends learning something new. Uh, compared to the courses that promise a whole new career after four months, where you put all your life on it. I mean, that's also admirable from every anyone who does that. That's like a super scary step to make, and they are always putting in all the work. But, yeah, from, from the teaching perspective... It's also a, a huge pressure on both, both of them and and both them and me.
1: Because you, you have been a teacher for quite a while, right? Yeah. Have you always taught? Like, when did you start first? <laughs> what was your first teaching experience? Uh,
0: well, back at university, I uh, did uh, one of the practical courses. That was my first experience. It, uh, in Hungarian universities, that's like a thing that students tend to teach younger students after one or two years. I had zero idea about what I was doing. Uh, it also was an optional class, so I had twenty people on the first class and three on the second and one on the rest of the course, uh, rest of the classes. And I tried to show them a different perspective than what they were shown during the like lectures because by that point I was working full time at a at an agency, so I had like a closer connection to what I was talking about, but uh, that was definitely what not what I was supposed to do there, so it didn't really work out.
1: <laughs> Did you ever receive mentoring on pedagogy? Oh no, never. No. <laughs>
0: I did a lot of reading on that, so I did my own research and I experimented with how I teach and uh, worked on it, like, consciously. And I did get a lot of positive feedback. Like, I did have people come up to me after classes and ask me, like, Oh my God, where did you learn to teach? This is so amazing. And I I could just say that, uh, thanks, but... I'm a software developer <laughs> on paper, and I just do these other things because I enjoy doing them.
1: What do you think about the idea that those who can do, do, and those who can't do, teach? All right. One of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs>
0: meets to debunk. I do actually believe that that's partially true, and that is why I was always trying to balance doing and teaching during Mm -hmm. my career. So Mm -hmm. I was always working on something and doing the classes, except for like one uh, two-year period where we were kicking off a new uh, boot camp school. And uh, the promise was that all the teachers will also work on projects, but we couldn't afford it because we didn't have enough teachers. So... Except for that, I was, <laughs> I was always trying to balance the two things out because I find it important to keep the knowledge fresh, especially on fields like this that are evolving this quickly. It's really important to be up to date, to just at least have like a broad understanding of the
1: Replication of knowledge, right? Yeah. If I think about teaching, I, I think I have a gift for it, or I have a like I like doing it.
0: Yeah. So you also have teaching experience. I do.
1: I will coming from
0: a very very young age, if I
1: am not mistaken. Yes. Yes, and from a very different field. Too. <laughs> yeah. I used to ride horses semi-professionally. I um, used to compete, and I started it when I was eight. Uh, competi- competing, not but riding horses, and and it pretty quickly evolved from there, and it developed into a place where not just riding uh, for fun, but actually also training other horses and other people. And I remember I loved it. I thought it was really dissatisfying to transfer knowledge and see others improve. And, and the same thing went for the horses that I trained, that I just loved seeing them grow in their knowledge and, and how we could collaborate. But if I think about design and the area of where I work and the area where I work at I I find that I quite enjoy teaching when it's a dedicated space to teaching but I'm not so good at transferring knowledge on the go so when someone works with me and I need to keep them or bring them up to speed I have a very different tolerance to that than when I'm in a classroom what kind of experience do you have with that? Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely two very different uh,
0: situations. And for me, also, if it's explicit that I am there to support these more junior people and I have like allocated time to yeah. spend with them and to work with them, then that's fine. But if I'm just in a team and people randomly don't know what they're doing and I'm supposed to be patient with them, <laughs> that could be a problem.
1: Yeah. You know, at one of my recent jobs, I actually ran into kind of a challenging uh, setup because what happened was I was hired as an external consultant since I work as a freelancer. And at some point, the request came up that I should be also coaching some of the people I work with to do their job better. And quite frankly, I found myself in a kind of an impossible place what am I supposed to do now? As in, in my understanding of my job description, I'm there to deliver work. But if I start dedicating time to training these people and also transferring some of my responsibility to them just so they can practice, that's a different kind of animal. So, yeah, I think as long as it's well defined that there is space for uh, teaching and skills transfer... I'm happy and I love doing that, but if it becomes some sort of an overlay of a responsibility that I signed up for, I find that more difficult to meet. Yeah, it takes time, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of extra
0: energy, and uh, sometimes people forget about that, (laughs) that can end up in tricky situations.
1: Yeah, it was difficult for me to explain why I find it a problem the time I, I felt like my client expected it as part of the, the work but initially this was not part of what we agreed upon and, and I felt like I was the bad guy saying no or, or explaining that it, it creates a burden actually and not what I agreed to do.
0: So there is this really useful tool in the D&D space called a session zero, which means that before you start playing together as a team, you sit down first and talk about what everyone expects from the game. Like what kind of a tone they are okay with. Should this be like super serious? We are saving people here from dragons. Or should it be uh, exclusively about fart jokes or, like, anywhere between those two things, okay. and, like, what kind of uh, triggers there might be during a session, like, okay, we might be killing people here, because, um, <laughs> you know, that's, like, sword and sorcery, that's that's all about that, and, like, how far is it okay to go with torturing people? Uh, are you okay with spiders, snakes, uh, hurting kittens, stuff like that? huh and Interesting. So it's we, almost like you have to choose a safe word. <laughs> yeah, and we sometimes also do choose a safe word. That hmm. If something is starting to go in a way that you are not feeling comfortable, just say banana, and then we can stop and reroute. And so I think it's really important to like set expectations, set a clear, uh, set clear boundaries, and set clear rules about. What some people are doing together in a team, yes. both in the d setting and in any work settings, really. And it's easy to forget that, like when we start working with a client, can just say that, oh, no, you know, you're a developer, you just go and code stuff, and then we will pay you. But it's never that simple. So we have to clarify the roles, clarify the expectations, clarify the tone, how we can
1: talk about stuff clarify what we don't want to do. I had an experience like that recently where the client that I was working with put together a group of people from different consultants from all outside from the all outside from the organization. But there was no session 0. <laughs> we were thrown into into a room or a virtual room to work together and the thought on behalf of the client was that because they hired all these professionals who were quality professionals, they will just work together smoothly and (laughs) they will know what they have to do. And I remember initially we also tried to clarify some borders for where the role starts and where it ends and how it overlaps or it doesn't, what are the expectations. And the response was that we are professionals. We can just figure it out. Uh, and I hate that expression.
0: Just figuring things out is not a thing. Yes, You have to actively figure things out.
1: But the thing is that as an individual contributor, when a client tells you that being able to do XYZ because you are such a highly viewed professional should be part of what you do, it is a trigger for me. Like, okay, yes, I have to try to do that and i would i will go until the end to meet those expectations and i'm not sharing a secret here that it did not succeed and eventually it required intervention and and quite some investment on behalf of the client organization to fix it but yeah i think session zero would be wonderful for every initial work session in one of the projects that i was working on not so long ago it was in the industry of education, healthcare education. And that company has a whole department dedicated to pedagogy and the various approaches to how people can learn because they have a pretty wide portfolio of educational products, services, both physical and digital. And I try to take advantage of learning as much as possible about it. First it was work driven as in understanding better how they, certain products were developed and how they support that kind of pedagogy. But as that project went along I realized that oh my God, like understanding pedagogy to this depth also serves me for the future. On one hand, reflecting on my own education and understand how I learn best and how I've learned best. Yeah. And also as going along if in the future I will have an opportunity to teach, to take it into consideration when I build up my approach to, uh, to teaching and how I want to mix these different pedagogies. So that was also something that I hadn't expected to, to, to learn about. It It was not something that I would look up online, but I'm so happy that I had an opportunity to, to learn about it. Did you learn anything interesting about how you learn? Oh, absolutely, yes. But there were three different mental models to learning. Up until that point, I kept saying that I wish that there was an education system that combines the Prussian model, so the one that we in Hungary
0: were presented
1: with, and the Anglo-Saxon model that that exists mostly west from here. The main difference is that while here, the idea is, and I can't recall the name of that model, but I can tell you in retrospect the model that we were presented with was the type of model that I think it's maybe the black box model where everything is thrown into the box and whatever sticks sticks Hmm. I mean there are ways to to test it where the way that they check your knowledge is they ask you questions and then you have to answer what you remembered from what you heard and then there is the learning by doing model which assumes that the best way to learn is if you do it yourself and the learning actually will not happen while the doing, but in the reflecting period. By the way, now we are sitting by um, an outdoor fireplace in the forest, pretty ad hoc fireplace. But so for example, in this case, what would happen is that I tell you, Anik will go and uh, make some fire. And so, You would, you know, experiment and and try to see what works. And once it worked, we would sit down and I would ask you to recall. So how did it happen? What was your experience? What was success? And so basically the idea is that you learn through your own reflection. I think in another podcast, we talked about all the different schools and educational experiences we had. And so I've been to three, I've been to three universities, one in Hungary, one in Holland and one in Italy. And... The Dutch system is quite hardcore, hardcorely dedicated to the learning by doing part, whereas the Hungarian system is very much the black box of they just throw everything at you and whatever sticks, sticks. And what the takeaway from that is they they often say that you get some sort of a lexical knowledge through the black box. So you will know people and some facts here and there linked to maybe some um, age, maybe some uh, year numbers, and you will have maybe like an overview of things. But if you have to actually carry out a specific task, you may not be able to do that. Whereas the Dutch model is you may not have an overview, you may not be able to place it in the whole system, but you surely will be able to do one or two or three specific things that you have done and had the chance to experiment with. And I have a nice story or a nice example. So I, I studied at the time industrial design uh, and that was the, the program that I participated in in Holland too. And the way they, they structure the program is they have trimesters and you can apply for certain classes. But at the end, the educational office decides who goes to which class. Like you can write a preference and then they will, you know, sort it out who goes to which class. So with that, I was put in a class called microcontrollers. Sounds fun. (laughs) This was in 2004, okay? So I had zero prior coding knowledge or any knowledge of the hardware. And basically this class was about us learning to build a motherboard and to learn some basic coding and code it so it does something they introduced this challenge on the first day i got really excited i'm like oh my god i learned something new (laughs) i got acquainted with this technology how fun can't wait and then at the end of the class the professor said okay so on your way out there are the, the parts to the motherboard hanging in a bag by the door you can pick one and the lab is on, you know, the second floor at room 25. So if you have any questions during the semester, you know where to find me. And otherwise, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I was like, wait, what? what? What do you mean, good luck? What about next week's class? And it turns out that there were no classes. The idea was that you go out there, you find the materials where you can learn how to do it from. And if you have any specific questions, you can go to the professor to consult. Oh, that's not right. (laughs) And so that's what we did. I have to say that it it felt like some rusty parts are moving close, scratching each other, like, like, you know, shifting my mindset from the, okay, give me all the data and I will fish from it to the, okay, holy shit, where do I find this information? Yeah. There's this uh, educational model that
0: I really like that plugs some of the holes that I have a problem with with this approach. It basically has like six phases of learning and there is one phase that was very much missing from what you just described and also from the campfire example is that I will definitely need someone to show me how to light a fucking fire first. So first step is modeling someone lights the fire, I, I watch watch it and pay attention. It's much better to actually see it than to read about it because everyone who knows how to light a fire will definitely miss some really small details that are super natural to them if they just want to talk about it. But if they do it, it might become apparent. So that's, that's the modeling phase. And like if that's missing i just i don't even know how to get started with learning something that makes everything so much easier and then of course there's the, there's all the next steps where i also try to light that fire and you tell me what i fucked up and where we both reflect about what what's going on with that fire but that first step it's pretty crucial
1: you know, that also resonates with the, with the research work that I do. Because very often when, I am in, when I'm in some kind of a research process, I'm out there to understand how people do a certain thing and how, what is their experience doing that. Yeah. And just what you said, the person who lights a fire every single day, maybe multiple times, will certainly miss sharing some detail with me because it's so natural, it comes yeah. so natural to them. Oh, you just light it. That's so easy. Indeed. And sometimes they, they say that. I just light it. Yeah. And then you really have to go around it to get a full picture and, and very often even go and observe it because the way how your brain works and how you describe it can also miss crucial yeah. elements. And when you're there and you see it is, oh my God. Yeah, you, you actually have to go around the tree because it's on your way. So that creates an extra loop which... Which, I don't know, maybe influences how many fires you can light a day. Or yeah, or maybe this campsite is on the northern side of the hill, which creates a windy situation. And that's why you cannot do X, Y, Z. It's nothing to do with the technique that you're using.
0: Yeah. If I could ban a word, that would be just in any answer. So if I ask someone something and the answer includes the word just, I'm immediately... Figured? immediately furious because if it were that easy that I just have to do something that I wouldn't be asking this, would I?
1: Yes. Or if you knew it, you wouldn't be asking. It. Yeah. And that's an attitude. That's no, not very friendly. So there are different approaches to a learning session, and I would be curious to hear what, you, what your reflection is. There is one op- option that you let someone do and let them fail and then discuss it then there is an approach where you stop them the moment they failed and have them redo it from the beginning so where they they com- they complete it then it's fine and then there's the approach where you let them do it all the way discuss mm-hmm. and then have them do it again do you have a an idea which one would be the most effective uh I also have a cognitive apprenticeship answer
0: for that one. Okay. And that's uh, a step that's called scaffolding. Okay. And that means that there is this uh, zone of proximal development, which is like at the edge of your knowledge, that it's just just within arm's reach. You almost know it. You just need to just one little thing and then it will work. And that's that's like very important to keep people in there. So if you give people a task, you can build a scaffolding around that so that they can focus on that one new information that is in their zone of proximal development that is within reach for them and they don't have to deal about the rest of the, the stuff. So my answer to that would be it depends on what task you just gave them. And if you gave them the right task that is like really focused on that one new information that they are about to learn, then their failures will be smaller and more manageable. They can manage that because it's like a small scaffolded area. And then you can discuss the failing afterwards and learn from that. But like sending someone away with a task that spans a month with no information and then discussing it afterwards, that's not super effective. Yeah. I so, mean small iterations.
1: Yeah. Well this organization their thought was that they just want to have them go all the way, let them fail and have the learning happen yeah. through the discussion.
0: Yeah, failure is important. It's just you don't have to waste a lot of time on that. Yeah. You told me a good story about learning how to fail
1: (laughs) oh god yes so I I used to compete in horse riding I used to do dressage riding and there was an occasion when I was at a show and I was not in a good place mentally I went in I did the program and there was a moment where I felt that I'm just doing so freaking poorly I'm gonna give up so the thing is you can give up a program halfway so I did and I laughed and and I was really upset. And my trainer was really upset and everybody was really upset for my team. But why did I do it? And I felt like a total failure. At the end of the whole show, you get your scores. And I got my scores and I realized that had I finished the program, I would have come out in the top three. So that was the last time I gave up something in the middle of it that was a life lesson (laughs) that sometimes maybe what you experience in your head is not, is not equal to what actually happening with you and around you. Yeah. But I think this whole horse riding or let's call it the sports experience was, I think my first real educator in so many ways, in one way that discipline really builds habits and it really builds success. I was really lucky to experience it through that domain because it was something that I loved. I loved so much that I would skip classes for it. In the last two years of high school, I would spend more time with the horses than some of my afternoon classes. <laughs> and that was something I did every day, rain or shine, ice or snow, no matter what. And I learned to appreciate the process. And I think those who who have... Being involved with sports that way know this feeling and i think it's so difficult to explain otherwise maybe also it's similar to school like i mean you also go to university or certain educational systems for a longer period of time so you do see the progress what do you think yeah
0: i have never did sports like in a serious way so i don't really have a, a way to compare those two things but it feels like school is somehow different i mean i bet there there are a lot of outside expectations with sports as well if you have the parents to to pressure you into that but i think for school that's that's like more more of a thing that you have to do Mm -hmm. and with sports you made a choice
1: yes but you see the results at the end, no, yeah. no matter whether you were motivated from the inside or from the outside.
0: I mean, I'm still not sure what are the results that I can see from my university degree. <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think the results are?
0: I mean, my sole motivation was uh, to make my parents happy because uh, they found it really important to have a university degree.
1: If, if they didn't, you wouldn't have done it?
0: I don't think so, no. And I mean, I did have some good classes and I did get good foundations for the theoretical uh, basis of programming. And they were sometimes interesting. It didn't really bring me closer to be a good professional in what I do. The actual technologies that we learned were even back then at the moment super outdated and not widely used so no practical knowledge there i had a good class about accessibility which was really one of my best ones where we could see people you use a screen reader and and stuff like that that are really important to experience can re- can be really useful and like broaden the perspective Other people say that they go to university to build connections. I went to the other university, like especially chose the (laughs) one which is not about getting drunk and doing idiotic things with the other couple hundred guys that are there. Is there
1: such a university where you don't have to do that? Yes,
0: mine was just like that. I could very easily skip on all the social things. I didn't even go to my... uh, Introduction week? Yeah. So no, I didn't. I'm not saying that I didn't make any friends because I did. I made one or two friends that I still keep in contact with and play D&D with. But definitely it wasn't about making connections for me.
1: I mean, I also remember the introduction camp where we were in in the countryside and there were these games and one game was a farting competition. Yay. So much fun for girls to yeah. participate in sorry for the gender prejudice maybe some girls love that but i mean at this point i think it's also worth mentioning that i think we both went to schools that were primarily male dominated i don't know was, yeah. was, was your school like that
0: well yeah i had like four or five girls on
1: the 500 people class yeah, okay yours is worse than mine <laughs> we had like 300 and then i think we were like 15 girls, also a nice ratio. if we talk about skills and how you acquire them, a crucial point is time it takes time to require them and it takes practice to require them. you can't just read it and then know it. I remember when I, when I first started to be interested in research quite frankly I If I think back, I don't think that the university provided a very good base for teaching us how to do research. But I did read quite a lot of books. And as soon as I got out in the real life, I started to employ them. And all of that came through practice and experience and learning from the failures. And and the funny thing is, I find that approach in in Holland might have been flawed to, to do it this way, but it did give me the permission to do it the same way by myself later on and I think that sort of encouragement that sort of permission helped me to learn a lot of other things so maybe if I didn't even learn the actual skill building motherboards that that didn't become my <laughs> biggest passion but it did taught me how to learn that was also an, you know that was another way to learning something I didn't have to wait yeah. for somebody to tell me
0: yeah, of course, it's important to learn how to learn, but that is also something that you have to learn from somewhere. It, you don't just magically uh, realize that this and the, this and the, this is how to use Google or a, a book or a library or anything like that. You need some example to follow. Yes, that's
1: true. And I also remember a class from Holland. I like to talk about these classes because they were so <laughs> off compared to what we were doing in Hungary. So part of the industrial design education was to learn how to draw, right? Like you need know, to visualize. There were all kinds of uh, visualization um, techniques that we learned. And one thing was the basic thing, to draw. And while in Hungary, the approach was very systematic, very reality-based. So for example, when I went to the application exam, you also had to draw, right? You had to sort of yeah. show what kind of skills you had. And I hadn't prepared anything and i heard that other people went to all kind of drawing classes and and so i went there and i remember sitting in the room and you know they gave us this big this board and the the big white sheet and then first you had to draw something in perspective and then something in like the texture of it so how, how much you understand that of that like shadows yeah and, and i remember the people sitting around me they were holding up these pencils and they were doing some weird thing in the air. Which <laughs> I, at the time, I didn't understand what they were doing. And I'm like, what is that for? And I had no clue. And so I was just drawing. I think I probably have a good like, sense of, I don't know, like shapes and, and the, the visuals. So space, I, I, yeah. Space. And so I, even though I, I didn't have that, I think my drawing went pretty well. I got accepted. And only after, when I was attending the school, I learned that, oh, actually, they use these pencils for... Creating. Taking
0: measurements. Yeah. Yes,
1: and the ratio to be right and correct and the perspective. And and <laughs> fast forward to Holland, I went to drawing class, and I was expecting something similar. You know, we will try to be as realistic as possible. And, <laughs> and instead, the first class, they switched off the lights in the room, and uh, the teacher put on a music, uh, like a song, and he instructed us to to listen to the music and then afterwards, choose two colors from a colored pencil palette. And he will replay the song. And then we have to close our eyes and take one pencil in each into our hands and just start drawing. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> close my eyes and draw with two hands on a music. But the end goal for this class actually was is that There were, I think, three or four different tracks that we listened to. I think it was a whole day in class, so it wasn't like a one-hour class. And the target for it was that at the end, we would design an audio player for each track. So what would be the style of that audio player inspired by that specific track? And so he had like a whole process built up how we started with eyes closed, two hands, just get the shapes and the movement and then more into the colors and more into and it was quite interesting like you were designing the same thing but you had five different versions based on all this process so I thought it was very cool
0: oh I also had my fair share of traumatic uh, drawing classes I did go to many many different art classes back in the day because I think art was my what horse riding was for you art was for me like I had my first solo exhibition at five. Oh my god! Really? Yeah. How fantastic! From everything that I have drawn from zero to five years old. Oh my god! And then I was constantly going to different kinds of like artist uh, classes. One time where I, I went to one of these like very, very Hungarian art classes where you get the box and then you get the drape and then you yes, get the skull. Drape. Yes. And then that's it. That's yes. the three things. Maybe that apples you
1: and or and uh, you know yeah, grapes. Yeah, sometimes
0: sometimes fruit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so books, drape, fruit, skull. Yes. That, that's it. And I, I enjoyed especially the skulls. Skulls are like very funny uh, shapes, very interesting. I went there for months and months, and we did the taking measurements with the pencil yes. stuff and everything, and everything had to be like super accurate. And then at some point, like t- t- totally randomly, the, the guy came up to us and said, okay, so this is nice, you drew that, now draw something that's not there. And huh. like, so I was, I don't know, like 12 at this point, And up to that point, the last couple of years were spent by like teaching me how to draw foxes and to draw s- stuff that are exactly like how you see them. And I had absolutely no context for drawing something that is not there. So that was pretty much a traumatic event for me when he told me that I should draw something that's not there. And I had had nothing to come up with. Yeah, I had absolutely nothing. And what happened? I sat there for like quite a while. And then he nagged me for quite a while. And then at some point I started to write like tiny dogs climbing on the skull. And so that was my solution for something that's not there, like a tiny dog cartoons there. But it was so painful. You can't expect people to come up with creativity in a vacuum. You can learn where to reach to get inspired. There are so many sources of inspiration, but I did need someone to tell me that. And I couldn't just come up with stuff. I know I'm a robot, but
1: no, I think you know that's also a muscle that you need to flex. Yeah, exactly. I have a very similar trauma event, not with drawing though, but also in Holland. You know, there was a class about shape shaping things, and here in hungary you learn first to plan right to do you think about something and then you start drawing sketches and then step by step you get to the final idea well the process there was that they they said you have to pick an object and then you have to create a copy of that object out of clay Hmm. so that was step one okay fair seems you know fairly easy depending of course on the object that you choose but it's a fun exercise it's right in front of your eyes so just you know you copy it and then the second session was that okay now we will start pivoting you, you recreate the object but change something about it just just allow your creativity to flow and i was like what do you mean allow my creativity <laughs> yeah. to flow what can I, I i think i was working with a i created a copy on like a model of a camera out of clay and i'm like so what do i put another button and they are like, no, like you have to play with the shapes of it. And I like, what do you mean play the shapes of it? And, and I think it was a, maybe like an eight or ten uh, occasion class. And I swear to God, my final result was not something I'm the most proud of in my, you know, story or history of creativity. It was horrible. It looked like sh- shit. It, really, it was like, <laughs> it was crap, nothing. And then all my other classmates, all the Dutch guys, they, they had come up with these beautiful objects that you know would be you know proud part of any home that you put on the mantle or or you know on a beautiful desk in the middle of uh, your living room mine not so much it had nothing to do with beauty or the flowing of creativity and it was the similar trauma for me what do you mean what do I allow to happen where do I take it this is an object that we use for something how do I Pivot from there. I had no practice with that—not planning, not drawing. Just what do I like? Punch this clay thing, or (laughs) that I could have done. Yeah, but
0: you didn't know. Yeah, I did get some very good uh, examples as well. Like in the in the past couple of years, I started to draw again or and paint again, and with uh, a friend of mine called uh, Oksana, who is an artist, and she has these art classes and uh, art residencies and and her approach is it works just so much better like she starts with we start with building context and with practicing creativity and and it's just so much so much easier for me to understand how creativity works when i can actually see the process and she can guide us through the process and we can learn at uh, we, we look at a lot of references, uh, the work of different artists, and how de- their process works. And we do a lot of like uh, quick drawing sessions where we just have like three minutes for something. And but we always have like a topic to to draw or like a model to draw or something to spark the creativity. Yeah. And then how to go from the first sketches to like an actual painting, the whole process, what to look out for. It's a much nicer and safer experience than what I have ever tried during my many years.
1: I think people who teach us something, I, I can call them teachers, but they are not always officially our teachers. But just people we learn something from, they really play a, a pivoting role heart in our lives I mean okay we can I I mentioned a couple of stories from Holland and now you mentioned a couple from here and how it also influenced like the method that they chose how they taught us and in many cases of course their personalities too but if I one thing that I observed recently as a I think the biggest advantage that I I have from very early on is the ability to ask questions because I find that a lot of things that we learn I mean one thing is to learn a skill just like you were describing it but another thing is to give ourselves permission to practice it I feel like in many ways schools used to be that gate, those key, gatekeepers or they used to play that role that once I finish the school I, I have permission to practice something I see it especially in this part of the world that Curiosity is not something that is being encouraged. I think it also comes from the system that I I grew up in a family where my parents always asked me questions about my experience. Like they wouldn't tell me, hey, this was good, bad. They asked me, what did you think? What was your experience? And I think planting that approach took me a long way to, to allow myself to ask questions. And because I said so many bad things about courses that were created recently, (laughs) I also want to add that I think it's wonderful that now there is a democratization of education. I love that there are so many things that we have a chance to take a, a look at and decide for ourselves if we want to immerse ourselves in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that's our cue to wrap this up. What's the learning? What's the message today?
1: It's good to learn.
0: <laughs> and there are many sources for learning, even some unexpected ones. So keep an open mind.
1: And just reach out of the professional realm. It's not always what you learn there. that gives You know you...
0: what? We could also end with a question instead of a statement. Yes. Like, hey, listeners, what's the most random piece of knowledge that you could use in your work that didn't come from your work background.
1: Yes. Tell us about that.
0: Comment it on our Instagram posts.
1: Which is at?
0: Which is at products. See you there. Also, please rate us.
1: Yes. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was recorded in the Buddha Hills at Normafa. It was produced by Aniko Feyesh and me, Yuli Mata. Original music by White Hot from FreeBeats.io. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. Come visit us on Instagram at pats.puddles.products DM us or leave us a comment. We would love to hear from you. Rate us if you liked it or if you disliked it. Either way, we would love to have your feedback. Thank you for listening again and looking forward to hearing the next time around. Bye.